Welcome, dear readers. You're listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. We're recording today from various locations around Winnipeg, all within Treaty 1 territory and the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Cree, and Dakota, as well as the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis homeland. Our drinking water comes from Shoal Lake 40 First Nation in Treaty 3 territory. In this episode, we will be discussing An Absolutely Remarkable Thing by Hank Green. I'm Dennis from the Idea Mill, though I'm currently found at the Henderson Library, and I have a YouTube channel about my adventures as a flyer delivery guy, which somehow has never gone viral. Across the screen for me is... Hi, I'm Toby. I'm an outreach librarian based out of Millennium Library, and um, I just met you, and this is crazy, but here's my number, so call me, maybe. <laughs> oh, and across the screen for me is... Oh, I, here I'm Trevor from the Louis Riel Library, and on my way to work today, I was following a very old car that was a Monte Carlo, except the O was missing, so it said Monte Carl, and I figured that was a good omen for today. <laughs> a good book can carry me away from an We couldn't do this without you. We all keep having this recurring dream where you contact us and tell us what you think of the books we're reading. Let's make that dream a reality. You can find our email address and all of our social media outlets by going to wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca and scrolling to the bottom of the page. If you hang around till the end of the episode, you can enjoy our special segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. In a moment, Trevor will give us a summary of the book, but first, Toby will tell us a bit about the author. Okay. Um, so let's talk about Hank Green. He is a very prolific person. Um, he really does a lot of everything. His Twitter bio says, I make videos and books and companies. Um, so let's get into all of that. So William Henry Hank Green was born in 1980 in Birmingham, Alabama, though his family moved to Orlando, Florida shortly thereafter, which is where he was raised. He has a BS in biochemistry and an MS in environmental studies. His master's thesis was called Of Both Worlds, How the Personal Computer and the Environmental Movement Change Everything. In high school and university, he started making websites. His first project was the Mars Exploration Page in 1994, which experienced small success on the heels of the Mars Pathfinder mission. In graduate school, he created the blog EcoGeek, which focused on technology that would benefit the environment. The blog evolved into a major publication and caught the attention of Time Magazine, where it was described as porn for hardcore science tech and enviro freaks. <laughs> uh, in 2007, Hank and his brother John ran a video blog project uh, with the premise that the two would stop all text-based communication and instead converse by daily vlogs made available to the public via their YouTube channel, Vlog Brothers. This led them to become YouTube celebrities and really helped grow the YouTube community, which at that point was only a few years old. Eventually, they ran out of things to talk about, so they started explaining stuff. To further these educational aims, they created uh, some YouTube channels, such as SciShow, which is a pop science exploration of everyday phenomena, and Crash Course, which explains the basics of history and science. Crash Course is now used in nearly every high school in America. In 2008, he launched DFTBA, which is an acronym for Don't Forget to Be Awesome, uh, .com, that's a website, which is a company that helps creators create and sell projects. In 2010, he created VidCon, now the world's largest gathering that celebrates the community of online video. 
In 2012, he co-produced the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, a vlog-style retelling of Pride and Prejudice that became the first web series in history to win an Emmy. In 2015, he got involved in podcasts, first in a dubious advice podcast with John called Dear Hank and John, uh, Delete This, where his wife critiques his Twitter feed, and SciShow Tangents, a science-focused game show. His debut novel, An Absolutely Remarkable Thing, was published in September of 2018. When asked to describe the book in three words, Green said, Giant Robot Mystery. <laughs> its sequel, A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor, was published in July of 2020. Both debuted as New York Times bestsellers. His favorite books include Jurassic Park, Dune, Ender's Game, and Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars series. And then in doing research about Green, I was reading about an appearance he did with his brother, and they did like various bits together, but this tidbit came up, which is related enough that I wanted to mention it. Um, and that is, the pronunciation of the word robot wasn't standardized until the 1960s, which meant that many people up until then pronounced it rowboat. Oh. Yeah. Hmm. So, there you have it. <laughs> that is Hank Green. A rowboat invasion would be a very confusing kind of concept. Very, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I could see that, though. You could make the O sound that way. You know, just like if you had never seen the word jog, you might think it could be pronounced yog if it was Scandinavian. <laughs> and if you had robots in rowboats, what do you have? <laughs> thank goodness. Thank goodness the book never takes us that way. The robots are very stationary. <laughs> very stationary. Except their hand. Uh, One hand. <gasps> yes. Spoilers. And, uh, yeah, that's amazing. The, the guy's done just about everything. He and, and, has done a lot. And, well, we can get into this, but I was just going to say that often with a debut author, they have to work to get a audience or a fan base. But uh, it's like almost this is just like another thing that he's doing that his, his uh, fan base may enjoy and maybe increase his fan base to people like, uh, speaking for myself, who had not read or visited any uh, online stuff that he had done before, but I have since. But we can talk about that. Right, right now, we want to do a summary, I think, don't we, of an absolutely remarkable thing. And with these summaries, again, I always like to give a little pre preface. Uh, sometimes I go long. Sometimes I don't give enough. I feel like in this book, it's sort of episodic. So I feel like I had to give enough information that people that haven't read it will get a sense without giving too much away. So having said all that, this is my summary of an absolutely remarkable thing by Hank Green. While walking home from work in the middle of the night, April May, yes, that's her name, passes a 12-foot-tall robot, rowboat perhaps, or robot, <laughs> on the sidewalk. Being an art school graduate, she assumes it's some kind of new art installation and convinces her pal Andy to get out of bed and meet her at the statue slash sculpture so they can make a goofy video about it. April May pretends to interview the robot and christens him Carl. Andy uploads the video to YouTube, and overnight, their lives change forever. Their video becomes a viral hit, and all of a sudden, April, and to a lesser extent, Andy, are internet famous. Also, it turns out there isn't just one Carl, but 64 Carls around the world, seemingly popping up without warning at the same time, the same time that New York Carl appeared. April's fame skyrockets as she becomes, by default, and also by some careful planning, the human envoy and face of the Carls. She does a ton of TV and podcast interviews, she gets a publicist, and even a personal assistant, the unflappable Robin. April also connects with Miranda, a materials scientist and grad student from Berkeley who has made some disturbing discoveries about the Carls and what they might represent. This newfound fame comes at a cost. Her relationship with her roommate-slash-girlfriend, Maya, is stretched to the breaking point, 
even as they discover a secret code in a Wikipedia article related to the Carls. After close contact with the Hollywood Carl, April begins to have a dream where she is in an office building in an empty city. She discovers that the building, and the city, are filled with puzzles and codes that, when solved, lead to more puzzles and codes. She also learns that this dream is contagious, and soon thousands, if not millions, are sharing the dream on a nightly basis. These people are known as dreamers. Of course, April is their de facto leader. Inevitably, opposition to the Carls and what they could mean for humanity grows and centers around Peter Petrowicki, a so-called expert, because he's written a book, doesn't matter that it's 20 pages long, on the Carls, who is a regular foil for April and her crew. And this opposition gets known as the Defenders. As April, Andy, Miranda, Robin, and Maya all play a role in unraveling the secrets of the Carls and the dream, the outcome is something no one could have predicted, and the ending leaves the reader with more questions than answers. Good summary. Mm -hmm. So how did you guys find this one? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, That's okay, uh, Trevor. You can uh, let it out. Uh, I was just, okay, maybe I'll just carry on with what I was talking about before the summary that... Readers may have read my introduction blog post on the Libraries Reader Salon page, where I was kind of facetiously referring to Hank Green as John Green's less-known brother, because, of course, John Green has written a number of books that have been made into movies, probably the most famous being The Fault in Our Stars. And I was thinking of Hank Green as kind of like the Billy Carter uh, of, the, of the relationship. But I, I was soon humbled when I did a little research and discovered all the things that Hank Green has done independent of his brother and with his brother that I don't think it's fair to call him the, the Billy Carter of this relationship. I don't know if uh, he struck his own path, helped perhaps with the, the fame of John, but they had been doing these things before either of them were famous. And so... This is sort of where I'm coming into Hank Green was I, I wasn't sure what I thought of him. Then I kind of liked him. And then I read the book and I feel like, and this is probably unfair, but I feel like to really give my opinion of the book, we almost have to take into account the second book as well, because it's a two book series. And the second book really does all the things that a sequel should do. It, it kind of builds on the mythology of the story. It kind of makes the first book better in some ways. It kind of re resolves some inconsistencies and that kind of thing. So I think I enjoyed the book enough that I jumped right into the second book as soon as I finished the first one. And some of my nitpicks or problems with the story, I feel like we're addressed in the second one. I, I'm being very kind of vague and aloof because I know we're talking about the first book, but I have complicated thoughts about it. I didn't read the second book. I mean, I am interested in the second book. It definitely, um, the ending really piqued my interest, but I also felt like, I don't know what his intention with this book is, obviously, but you never get an explanation of, of the Carls, of these aliens, why they're here, what they are, what they're doing. And the ending to me felt like a bit of a cop-out, but it also, ex like, I'm not being very articulate here either, but I've thought a lot about why this book is fiction and not science fiction. And to me, the difference with this seems to be that it's not, it's not about the aliens. It's not about the Carls. It's really more about April and the journey she's on. And so we don't need to know about the Carls. And so the fact that it ended on this sort of cliffhanger and that there's another book that maybe takes it more into that science fiction direction feels 
it doesn't feel genuine to the spirit of the book, if that makes sense, like the original book. Does that make sense? So, it makes sense to me. And again, I feel like instead of starting with a broad question, I, I feel like I'm jumping right to the nitpicks. But the book <laughs> is written as if it is like a found object, almost like World War Z by Max Brooks was, where when you read the very first chapter, it's written from April's perspective, and she's talking right at you saying stuff like, oh, I know you're only picking this book up because you want to know uh, more information about what's happened and about me. And, and every once in a while, it's, it's very self-referential. But then there's a section in the last section that April writes that couldn't possibly have been written by her for the book. It breaks that system. And then at one point during her rise to fame, she writes a book about her experiences and she takes it on a tour and things happen. And so as I was reading, I was like, well, it can't be this book because this book is talking about the tour and stuff and she's already got a book. And so that whole kind of structure and conceit kind of broke down for me a little bit. Having said that, it kind of repairs itself in the second book without going into any details. So maybe I'm drilling down too far in little technical things. Maybe we need to talk more about the book. Uh, well, well, I was thinking too, like my impression of it was that the idea is that April wrote this well after all of these events that occurred. She makes reference to that a few times, like, you know, like how she revealed this one thing that no one had ever known before because uh, she'd never told anybody. So my impression was that this was long after that initial book and long after uh, other stuff that had been written about it. And so this was a retrospective, which, of course, given the fact that she dies in the book is but like, OK, well, <laughs> see, there's the thing that what one of the things I liked about this book and I really enjoyed this book was right at the beginning with I think it's in the first sentence. She says, you know, OK, now you have to listen to the story the way I want to tell it. Well, unless you skip to chapter 13, I'm not your boss. <laughs> And, you know, uh, I think it's in like the third chapter, there's another line about how, and that was the best night of sleep I had until after I died. They dropped all these little hints that uh, all sorts of stuff was going to be happening later on. Just dropped all these hints at the beginning that this there was going to be a lot of oddities, a lot of weird stuff in this book, and that this was being written after the fact, reflecting on stuff that happened. And uh, I think she makes references throughout that, you know, at the time, I didn't realize this. So I think some of the things that maybe seem like weren't consistent with the nature of the book might be explained by the fact that it's just written a lot after it seems to be. That makes more sense to me. And so then the book that she writes with her ghostwriter is a different book altogether. It's maybe it's yeah. more it's more like, you know, those those quick to publication books that want to get published because uh, it's something of the moment and you see them in mass market and you know supermarkets or or drugstores because a thing happens and then a week later there's a book that's been cobbled together almost like peter pederick wecky's book uh, about the carls how it was a kind of a slapdash thing but it gave him enough credence to become the talking head expert on all the panel shows and i'm not saying that april's book was as slapdash as that but i can think of it better than is that is that is the book that she was touring is not this book this is another book that she has written after all the events of this book plus perhaps the events of the sequel <laughs> Yeah. One of the things I liked about the book was that it had different stages, right? Like right at the beginning, uh, like you said, in the summary, April assumed that the Carl's that she saw was uh, an art installation because that's her background. That's her experience. And so that's how she interpreted this contextless, entirely new stimuli. And it's only later when they discover, OK, these materials cannot exist on Earth. 
this has to be alien, that the conversation shifts away from, you know, is this art to is this an alien invasion? Like, are we in danger? That's where Peter Petrowicki starts coming in. You know, the Carls are this unknown thing, this blank thing that people can project themselves onto or project their hopes and fears onto. And that a lot of the book is just figuring out what are we actually talking about? I thought it was handled pretty well, the the whole dealing with uncertainty and the constantly shifting target of, okay, how do I respond to this now with this new information? I found it was interesting that Hank Green, who is not a, as far as I know, well, actually, we do know from Toby's summary, not an art student grad, and he is not a bisexual woman, uh, would choose April May as his protagonist and his as the voice, or maybe she chose him, uh, depending on how you interpret the writing process. Did you have opinions or thoughts on when a writer takes on a role so different from their own experience, lived experience, say, for example? I mean, to me, the experience of April that she has, like her, her fame really mirrors, it seems, Green. Like he sort of developed not instant fame like her, but very quick. He quickly rose to fame. And I think he understands how this type of fame works. And I thought by creating April, a woman, a, a young woman, a bisexual woman, he's trying to create some distance between himself and his narrator because he doesn't want to write a book about himself. Um, so mm. that's, that's how I saw it. You know, I thought that they had similar, like Hank Green and April may have similar experiences, but he didn't want to make it about himself. Yeah, that's a very good insight. I hadn't actually considered that part before, but... Yeah, when you're trying to avoid mirroring yourself too much in your work, making your character not be you intentionally is not a bad approach. Yeah, and at first it, it kind of bothered me. Like, I I feel like how can this white, cis, heterosexual guy write this character? But, I mean, I guess authors do that with fiction all the time, and I think he did it very sensitively and very accurately and very well. So uh, it, it all worked out. <laughs> I thought his characterization in general, like uh, I, I liked a lot of the characters for different reasons. Um, I have to say my favorite character was Maya. I, I loved her from the moment she was introduced because, they, you know, they were talking about how Maya was saying, well, she was black, but she didn't represent all black people. But sometimes when people talked to her, they acted as if she was talking for all black people. So she felt a responsibility to talk in a responsible and uh, appropriate manner in everything. And then when April was like, well, I hope you don't feel you have to do that with me. Maya was like, no. I'm careful with you for different reasons. And just at that moment, I just fell in love with her because this was a character who's so, so aware of her space in the universe and her connection to the people around her and who tries so hard to be mindful of them and of herself and to respect herself and respect them. And I don't know, I, I like the depth of the character that just came out in a few simple words. I felt like a lot of the characters, you got a sense of them very quickly just because of the writing. Uh, it's very nuanced, but uh, meaningful, or at least that's how I felt about it. Well, it's interesting because I liked April, May, but 
I liked her because she was kind of unlikable throughout the book in many ways. And, and yet I, I valued what I thought was her honesty, even though right from the beginning, you get a sense that she's an unreliable narrator to a certain extent. And the other characters, like her, her crew, are all seen through April's eyes. So it's interesting, like you say, we get sort of hints of their characterization, but all always through April's lens, except for the final chapter or whatever, where Andy is writing from his perspective. But um, yeah, I, I think my, my favorite character, I really like Miranda. I, I like the way that she could kind of focus on a problem and kind of work at it and also getting involved in something that was beyond anything she could have imagined. Like, you know, without having, she, she was not really looking for fame. She wasn't looking for the likes and the followers, but she, she was interested in the science of it and, and trying to understand what was going on with, with the Carls. And yeah, I enjoyed her scenes very much. Yeah, I liked Miranda too. I think I could really see Hank Green sort of putting in his own science stuff through Miranda, like her being really excited to go get the smoke detectors to take out the piece of metal or whatever. Like it was very much like him wanting to use this very specific knowledge he has about materials and science and elements funneled through, through her. Yeah. I thought too, that the relationship between Miranda and April May and generally the relationship of everyone to April May and with her newfound fame and celebrity, how that affected her relationships. And this is again, where Maya was an excellent character as the most objective of the people in April's orbit. And she could tell April, look at them They're They worship you. That's like hero worship. You know, they're, they can't say no to you because of who you are to them right now. That was something that April herself couldn't see properly. I also like the fact that right at the beginning where uh, in the that first couple of paragraphs really did hook me because uh, April's like, I'm going to try to approach this honestly, but I admit to a very pro-me bias, <laughs> which is something that I think every autobiography uh, should have in it. It's like, look, I'm going to try, but understand I, I like myself. So, you know, that's how say, I see it. I have to say a couple of characters I did not like were April's parents. Uh, I just found them oh, really? so like one dimensional, like, mm. you know, I mean, okay, great. They're supportive. They understand they're great. I mean, but I just felt it was laid on a little thick. And every time mm. they came into the story, I was like, okay, here we go. Another bit of family support. And uh, I don't know. It, it, it just seemed like a, like there wasn't much for them to do except be supportive, which I mean, that makes me sound like a monster for saying that I hate <laughs> hearing about supportive parents, but I, I don't know. It, it just, it, I don't know. I just, whenever they came on, I just, I didn't think their characters had very much depth to them, but then they're, 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 they're a third level character too. We're not, they show up now and again. And, and again, we're seeing it through April's eyes. So maybe, uh, yeah. I, don't know. I think they were mainly there because, you know, you wanted to show that she has a family. They are aware of this stuff, but yeah, they're not a major thing, which uh, I mean, you could have complicated it by just having them be, you know, like freaking out, like, what are you doing? You got to stop this, you know, uh, and that wasn't necessarily a direction that he wanted the story to go. I read somewhere that one of his big influences also was uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. 
And you can kind of see that through like a group of friends that are very different, but they work together to fight a uh, an impossible scenario kind of thing that I think he definitely, I, I saw sort of aspects of Buffy and, and her crew in April and her crew in this book in a good way. Like I thought they're all well drawn out, the main characters. I also saw about how Buffy was a big influence and I see that too, like this ragtag group of friends just taking on this universe-sized problem, a problem that's just beyond any of them, but it's now their responsibility. And also, the like in Buffy, there's always these very serious love stories, but that like have some absurdity to them, you know, like Buffy's a vampire slayer, yet she's in love with this vampire, and just like similar things happening here, just this absurdity that makes it really enjoyable and doesn't take itself too seriously. One element of the story that really caught my attention. So when it shifts to everyone being suddenly aware of the dream and they're trying to figure out the mystery of what's going on in the dream, one of the first things I thought about was like a community pops up and forms around this whole thing where people are working together to solve the problems. And there's a thing in our world called alternative reality games. These are things that pop up on the internet from time to time. Usually someone leaves clues in a blog post or a forum posting or something like that, uh, but sometimes it includes real-world objects that have a hint that brings you to a website that starts a mystery. And they don't advertise these things directly. Like, no one says, okay, we're starting an alternative reality game. They are created so that people will accidentally find them, stumble across them, and then eventually figure out, hey, there's a puzzle here, and then try to work on it. There have been a number of them uh, over the years, and uh, most of them have been advertising tie-ins to like a movie, a TV show, uh, something like that. But they didn't mention anything about that in the book. Uh, they didn't introduce the concept of alternative reality games. But in our universe, these have been here for at least 10, 15 years, I think. And they tend to feature things like communities spontaneously forming and working together to try to solve a problem as soon as people realize that this game actually exists. What did you guys think about that aspect, like the, the community that formed? I thought it was lovely. I love the whole concept of the dream. Like I thought that was so, so interesting and he, he did it so well. I mean, we don't, we never know in this book, like what the dream exactly is. And, but it does bring people together in a way that has never been seen before. And that moment near the end where April is dying and she is maybe in the dream, we're not sure, but a Carl is talking to her and she's asking it questions about it, why it's here. And she says something like, well, why, why did you come? Or what do you know? She says, like, what did you think of humanity? And the Carl says, oh, it's beautiful. And that was so like that, just that I love that moment. And that I feel like the it, that was all about the dream, like about people coming together and working together to, to solve these puzzles in the dream. Yeah. For me, the whole comparing the dreamers to the defenders what I got out of it was that every individual can contribute to something and everyone can make a choice and the platform is there and it can be used for good or for, for evil. And uh, the dreamers were working as a community and they wanted to share the information they got for the, for the betterment, for the fun of the puzzle and also just for the community aspect. And of course, the defenders were coming from it from a, a place of fear and a place of we have to keep this code hidden. We have to be the first to get there. And, and it was just an interesting that they, the, the platforms themselves were 
sort of neutral and similar, but how they were used by the people that were using them created such a different feeling. Yeah, it did a good job of showing the division that can pop up within or between communities and how quickly it can go really hostile. The dreamers were all like, oh, this is wonderful. You know, and April, May especially was a really big cheerleader for everything. The defenders were like, but we don't know what these things are. They could be here to hurt us. And there is a legitimate concern, like the Dreamers in April, May, they really ignored the fact that the aliens could be hostile. We didn't know. And even with the responses, like, what is humanity? Like, oh, it's beautiful. It's like, you know, a beautiful meal. Like, uh, <laughs> it, it doesn't really say there. there's not enough communication from Carl to be sure what their intentions are. And so... You know, the defenders had a point, even if they were very aggressive about it and they were dismissed. And I thought it was a good analogy for the way that these divisions pop up in our world now. At the time he was writing this, I think probably the QAnon phenomenon was maybe more on his mind, especially how, you know, the inflaming rhetoric of Q uh, led to some real world violence, like the guy who took a, an automatic weapon into a pizza shop because he assumed that there was a pedophile ring in the basement of this building that doesn't have a basement. Whereas now we can, with uh, the pandemic, you know, we have some uh, people who are very hostile to pandemic measures, uh, health measures, and some people who are very pro towards that. And there's often hostility between them. So even though contexts have shifted, the division that can pop up between groups is still a very big thing. And I thought it was illustrated very well in the book. There seems to be a, a number of moments in the book that I thought were almost prophetic. Uh, I was thinking a lot of the, the January 6th insurrection in uh, Washington, D.C., and a group taking over and losing control, the whole mob mentality and the defenders. And, of course, that hadn't happened yet when he was writing this book five, six, seven years ago. But it, it does speak to human nature, which we can then uh, see example after example, especially in the last year and a half or so, where we've where the human race has been put to the biggest stress test we've had probably in a century. There's one thing about good writing when it speaks to the human condition. Things change over time, but the human condition kind of stays the same. And if you have something that honestly approaches it, it's applicable in a lot of different times and places too. So that, that's something I really enjoyed about the book. I think it was a very honest look at people and uh, very insightful in a lot of ways. Yeah, and it sort of circles back to what Toby said at the beginning, where she sees this is why this is considered fiction over, say, science fiction, where it could be shelved in either or even young adult. But the fact that it's, it's a human story that happens to have giant robots in it versus a giant robot story that happens to have humans in it is a, is a, is a, is a kind of an interesting way of looking at it. And I, but I think it's absolutely right. I, it, it was an, ap an opportunity for Hank Green to say the things he was feeling about celebrity, about uh, social media, about how people react to things. And it was in the context of giant robots. And so uh, uh, what, what did you say, Toby? His three words to describe it were? Giant robot, robot. mystery. Giant robot mystery. Yeah. See, I could have just said that for the summary. And then that would give some time. <laughs> yeah. And also, I have to say, one of my favorite moments in the book was um, after you know, someone took a shot at April May through her window and uh, Carl's hand saved her. And she's trying to communicate with the hand and all it can do is tap. So she's like, okay, one tap for yes, two taps for no. Do you understand? And it taps twice. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, are you you're messing, messing with me. With me. 
uh, which, uh, yeah, it's like, okay, so the aliens not only have been observing us for a while, but they understand our humor <laughs> and can express it with a simple tap of the fingers. That was great. And they have pretty good taste in music. Um, I was really, <laughs> to change the subject a little bit, I was really intrigued with the use of music here. I mean, like, David Bowie is a really obvious choice in my mind. Like, of course, aliens are going to listen to David Bowie. But, like, mm -hmm. the Queen and the Carly Rae Jepsen, like, I thought, I thought those were really interesting choices. They were. And what was funny, too, is I found I was reading the book, and as soon as it referenced one of the songs, I was like, okay, put down the book, open up YouTube, listen to the song. <laughs> <laughs> I did that for each of them as I reached that point in the book. That's great. And uh, yeah, because I thought, okay, there might be something relevant here. I think I want to actually listen to the song. And I don't usually do that when I'm reading fiction and it refers to something in pop culture. I don't normally jump back to it. But I, I also, I'm glad you brought that up because I really enjoy fiction that is of its time. Like when we were reading Evie Drake a while back, I appreciated the fact that there were all sorts of details that were like, you know, like how people live currently. Like, okay, she set up her playlist and she got her earbuds in and simple things like that, that a lot of novels I read don't have in them because I think they're trying not to date themselves. Whereas this one, you know, specifically refers to things like Reddit and that narrows the date that things can happen to within a certain time period where Reddit is popular like it is now. If he had written it 10 years ago, maybe it would have been Dig or uh, some other website that was popular at the time. I like those things in novels because it helps really draw me in, especially if it's contemporary. And then I feel like, yeah, this person understands contemporary life and they're not isolated from it and the book swims in it. So one of the questions we had posted to social media was, if you suddenly had a huge amount of social media followers, like April May did, what would you post? Have you guys ever thought about that? <laughs> that kind of terrifies me, actually. Like, just the thought of having thousands of followers, like, that's a lot of pressure. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I would post things about my own personal agenda, like with the federal election coming up, I'd want, you know, people voting for the people I want to vote for. And with COVID, I'd be encouraging people to get vaccinated, like that sort of politically motivated stuff. I'm sort of like Toby, like the idea that the internet is forever. I think I would be frozen with fear because anything I would put out there could be found 10, 15 years later. And so I would really, I would probably be paralyzed with thought trying to think, now, what is my message? And even if it was something like I'm, you know, uh, tweeting what I'm having for lunch, uh, I'd be like, oh, this could be taken so many different ways. And I, so I don't know. I, what would my message be? Probably just something like, oh, be kind, be good to one another. Uh, I don't know. And then maybe like, uh, Dis discussing books. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. Something that would bring people together, which sounds super lame, doesn't it? But I don't know. I don't know. Well, the thing is, my experience on the internet is the bigger the audience you have, the more people hate you, just reflexively. Like anytime you look at the social media posts of even very popular people and you dig through the comments, you will find people being nasty for no particularly good reason. And that type of thing I've always tended to avoid. I don't post a lot to social media, partly for that reason and partly just because I don't feel like I have anything that a lot of people want to listen to <laughs> say. But yeah, if I was actually stuck in that position, all of a sudden it'd probably be like, oh, yeah, yeah. Empathy. Empathy is a good thing. <laughs> And universal basic income. That would be a good thing, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
But I think that's also something that's kind of brought up in the book. Like April May wasn't really qualified to be a spokesperson for humanity and to have a huge audience. She was just this person who was living her life, who makes mistakes like everybody else. And she wasn't posting about user interface design or stuff that she actually did with her life up to that point. And are any of us really qualified to speak to so many people and to tell them things about how to live their life? It's a mishmash hodgepodge of people posting things. And yeah, I don't know how anybody responds to it properly. I mean, the thing about April May, too, is she's so articulate, you know, like Mm -hmm. she may not have been deserving of the fame she got. But even when she's on the spot, even when she's kidnapped in a burning building, she's so articulate. And if you're gonna be a social media star, that's super important. And I think maybe that's where we're all struggling with. If we had this level of fame or this level of followers, you know, if we were super articulate, would it be better? Would we want it more? I think one of maybe her defining moments, too, in the social media realm was when she was trying to make that video in front of the Carl and she got stabbed. And then she recorded the last bit after being stabbed and she kept it a positive message about still like loving humanity. I, w- I couldn't and- do that. <laughs> No, that's such a test of a person, right? Like, even though you just had an example of something bad happening to you personally from someone else who you've never met before, and to still say humanity can be positive and is positive, and I'm glad to be human. But it's also a bit of a show, right? Like, it's also a bit pandering to her audience. Yeah, and I thought that really did show how much we make ourselves into what we think we're supposed to be. It it actually reminds me of like when I was a kid, really young kid, we were playing in uh, sprinklers in the front yard that my parents had set up and we're jumping around in the water. And uh, unbeknownst to me, a girl about my age was walking along the sidewalk and I guess she got sprinkled by the water and she turned around. She said something about, oh, you nasty boys or something like that, because we had splashed her. And I didn't know this girl. I had no negative thoughts about her, but she called me a mean name or something. And I was a boy, and I'd seen that scenario on TV before. And so I responded the way I'd seen before. It's like, oh, ha-ha, you got splashed, you know, uh, an immature childish response from an immature child. But also, I don't think I would have responded that way if she hadn't called me the name, but it created a scenario, and there was already a template in my mind for how that scenario played out. And a lot of times when April was responding to things, she was responding to a template that she saw. She saw herself as a defender of the Carl's voice for positivity. And so all of her social media kind of became the image. This is what April May, the social media star, says. This is what April May, who found Carl, says. And sometimes that message wasn't what she wanted to say, but she felt like this was her role. Uh, And I think oftentimes in life, we take on roles, even if we're not explicitly asked to, we just feel that, oh, this is the scenario. This is what a person in this position says. And and as much as April May was in control, she was also manipulated by forces beyond her control, like the publicist Jennifer Mm -hmm. Putnam, who wanted to create the April May brand, which was similar enough to April May the person that she was going along with it at first. But you're right, there were some moments where this was not April May the person. This was filling the need of April May the brand, the the human face that can interpret the the Carls for good. And uh, that created, uh, well, 
needless to say, it created a great tension between her and, and Maya and, uh, and everyone else that April May was uh, associated with, who knew April May as the person. In fact, at one point, was a, uh, after spoilers, Miranda and April May have a, have a moment. Miranda says, I can't believe I just hooked up with April May. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and she's like, what are you talking about? She goes, well, you know, it's big news or whatever. And it's, it was kind of this, even Miranda, who's quite close to April May, saw her as someone that was someone more and also less than human based on uh, her public persona. And maybe, yeah. I don't know if Hank Green, I'm sure he's experienced, well, it seems like he's experienced a lot of positivity online, but I'm sure he's he's had a fair amount of intrusion into his personal life. And I think that at times over the last few years, both Hank and John Green have intentionally taken breaks from social media just to kind of get their heads together and get their lives kind of sorted out. And, and you know, fair enough. So I'm sure a lot of those scenes coming from the heart. There is so much material in these books that we could talk about, but we're going to have to wrap up soon. So any final comments on this book? All I would say is that if you've read it or if you've heard this discussion and want to read it and you get to the end and you feel unfulfilled, I would strongly recommend picking up the second book because I, I feel like that will be a good thing. <laughs> Sold. I, I've been meaning to read the yeah. second book. Yeah. I'll, I'm going to get that pretty soon. Yeah, same. So with all of that said, uh, we'll move on to our next segment. Can you tell me a book I would also like? What have you guys got? Okay, I want to go first because I'm worried that one of you two is going to pick the same book. I don't read a lot of science fiction, but every once in a while, a science fiction book piques my interest. And this one did because it was a big blockbuster, and that is Ready Player One by Ernest Cline. Did I steal any of yours? No. No? no? Okay. <laughs> um, so... Ready Player One, it's um, set in sort of this like post-apocalyptic, very dire future where um, in order to escape, people play this virtual reality game where it's a series of puzzles and you can win a fortune if you solve all these puzzles. And that very much reminded me of the dream. And like an absolutely remarkable thing, this book is really fast-paced, it's action-packed, it's readable, and I think it just makes science fiction really accessible. So that is my recommendation. Nice one. Thank you. That's a great pick, Toby. And in fact, it was it was on my short list of ones to use. So yeah, it's great. And also just to say, it was made into a movie by Steven Spielberg in 2018, and also excellent, kind of the movie... It's done. Some scenes are done slightly differently to make them more cinematic, but uh, the spirit of the book is there. And I believe there's a sequel, Ready Player Two, that was written, which I haven't read. But uh, yeah, I fully co-sign that as, as a, another book that people will read. In a similar game, and I'm also I'm a, I shared uh, Toby's trepidation that perhaps Dennis has picked this one, is Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card, which is a, a book written in the mid 80s, I believe, and there are very, uh, very many similarities, I would say, to the themes in An Absolutely Remarkable Thing. In fact, I think Hank Green has cited this book as one of his, his favorites from the science fiction world. I won't go into a whole lot of detail, but Ender, he's called uh, a third because in the, in the far future, there's a two child policy on Earth, and so he is the third one, and it has to leave his home and he joins an academy where he's, he's taught about, well, school and uh, he's taught about uh, war and it's called battle school. Uh, and uh, he goes on and becomes uh, a military leader, but which is interesting. But the part of the, the book that kind of 
made me think more about the Hank Green book was that his older siblings, while they are at home, they create these anonymous personas. Keep in mind, this was written in 1985, so before the internet was widespread. And they kind of, as a game, one would take a very sort of like conservative point of view on major issues and write a thing. And then the sister would, would take a very kind of radical point of view of the same issues. And they would, they would create this debate back and forth on this online platform, just almost like as a lark to see if they could get any interest. And, and as it turns out, they, their ideas are picked up by the government and people and seen as very important. And because they're anonymous, if they found out there were just a couple of kids goofing around, they probably wouldn't have gone far, but then their ideas actually go on and get adopted by world governments and, and things. And so it's kind of um, an interesting early take at what social media could do. And so anyway, yeah, Andrew's game. Andrew's got Orson Scott card. Oh my God. <laughs> Does any of that make sense? <laughs> yes, totally. Okay. I'm going to cheat and uh, actually suggest more than one book this time because, uh, like I said, earlier this book really caught my attention really grabbed me and it reminded me explicitly of a book that i just randomly came across like 10 or 15 years ago at uh, one of the library branches which is called the chronoliths by robert charles wilson scott warden is a man haunted by the past and soon to be haunted by the future in early 21st century thailand scott is an expatriate slacker then one day, he inadvertently witnesses an impossible event, the violent appearance of a 200-foot stone pillar in the forested interior. Its arrival collapses trees for a quarter mile around its base, freezing ice out of the air and emitting a burst of ionizing radiation. It appears to be composed of an exotic form of matter, and the inscription chiseled on it commemorates a military victory 16 years in the future. Shortly afterwards, another larger pillar arrives in the center of Bangkok, obliterating the city and killing thousands. Over the next several years, human society is transformed by these mysterious arrivals from, seemingly, our own near future. Who is the warlord Kuin, whose victories they note? Scott wants only to rebuild his life, but some strange loop of causality keeps drawing him in to the central mystery and a final battle with the future. So the Carls obviously reminded me very strongly of that. The other thing that really hit me in the book was the dream sequences and how much they were like alternative reality games. And that reminded me of the book Pattern Recognition by William Gibson. Case Pollard is an expensive, spookily intuitive market research consultant. In London on a job, she is offered a secret assignment to investigate some intriguing snippets of video that have been appearing on the internet. An entire subculture of people is obsessed with these bits of footage, and anyone who can create that kind of brand loyalty would be a goldmine for Case's client. But when her borrowed apartment is burgled and her computer hacked, she realizes there's more to this project than she had expected. William Gibson used to do far future uh, sci-fi, and then I think around the time of pattern recognition, he switched to near future stuff, which is something that could happen in our contemporary life. Uh, and it really ties in a lot to the dream sequence stuff in this book, too. And to toss in a quick third, uh, Walk Away by Cory Doctorow, uh, which we did an episode on in our first year. Another thing that I think you'd like if you like this book, too. And so now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds, wherein our hosts seek answers to the puzzle that is human language by focusing on a particular word or phrase. My word this month is a bit meta I mean, it's not meta, but the word is meta in the sense that the word is deadpan. 
the word got prominence in the 1920s, originally in uh, gangster circles, where they would say, just give them the, the deadpan. And pan being a term for face is in like, don't give anything away. Just, just keep it, keep it all in there. Deadpan. And the reason I choose deadpan this month is because, uh, and this is a quote from Hank Green's brother, John Green. He says, I caught a lot of crap for the overuse of the word deadpan in my book, Looking for Alaska. To be fair, I did overuse it. And my editor told me to trim the deadpans. And I was like, deadpan is a beautiful word. I would read a novel that contained nothing but deadpan over and over. And in the end, I was wrong, and she was right, as usual. So now in every novel I write, I include the word deadpan exactly once as a joke to my editor, Julie. <laughs> I avoid using it more than once. And Hank Green has uh, picked up a mantle, and deadpan appears once in an absolutely remarkable thing and also in a beautifully foolish endeavor. Deadpan or deadpan. <laughs> so, uh, again, uh, if you're into Easter eggs, and if you read these books, you must be, look, try to find the deadpans. Deadpan. Mm -hmm. That's my word. That reminds me too. I, I watched a video where uh, Hank Green was talking about this book, and one of the thing, one of the questions he answered was, you know, are there Easter eggs in here for fans of his other work? And he said, oh yeah, there's a bunch of them in there. If you've been following him for a while, uh, apparently there's a lot, but that you won't notice them unless you're already familiar with his work. So that's <laughs> that's one I wouldn't have thought of. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. My word doesn't have anything to do with this book, but it does have something to do with another book I just read, which is called Hamnet and Judith by Maggie O'Farrell, which is set in 16th century England and is loosely based not on Shakespeare's life, but on the life of his family. So his wife and his children, particularly Hamnet, who was the inspiration for Hamlet, and uh, Judith, who are twins. The author of this book has clearly done a lot of research on this time period and uses a lot of language that you would see in Shakespearean plays. So words like buyer, doxy, curdle, fossic, tetchy, chivy, like all these very archaic words, like words you're, that are not used anymore. But one word that stood out that is that is still in current use is salubrious, which is such a such a great word, like just saying it is so satisfying. So it means health-giving or healthy, um, which being that I was sick recently, I'm feeling particularly salubrious. And it's a word I always, I always see and I forget what it means. So I'm hoping by saying it out loud in this form, I will remember. But I would encourage you just to, just to say it, salubrious. Like it's so, it's so satisfying. Salubrious. It is good. Salubrious. I, yeah. I feel good. I feel good. I feel better than I did. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Your choice was salubrious. Thank you. <laughs> My nerd word for this month is nut. So if you listen to our episode on the Saturday Night Ghost Club from a couple of months back, you might remember that my nerd word segment included this whole thing about how my mind had been blown by the fact that grapes are berries. So a few days ago, my mind was wandering again, and I was thinking about how much I liked almonds. And as is my habit, I looked up almonds on Wikipedia. Right in the second paragraph, it says an almond is a droop not a true nut. The phrase true nut sounded interesting, so I looked at the article on nuts, and the first line starts with these five words. A nut is a fruit. Now, I still haven't really fully digested the whole grapes or berries thing, which still sounds both obvious and yet still totally weird to me. So to find out that nuts are fruit is even more disorienting. All my life, I'd never even considered the idea that a bowl of peanuts, pecans, and walnuts could be accurately described as a fruit salad. Except it isn't a fruit salad because that's a culinary term and nuts are not a fruit in a culinary sense, even if they are in a botanical sense. 
And peanuts, pecans, and walnuts are not nuts, botanically speaking. Peanuts are legumes, and pecans and walnuts are droops. But we call them nuts in a culinary context because they're similar to nuts. And who wants to remember three different classifications when they all kind of fill the same culinary niche anyway? And just to circle back around on this, the legumes and droops in question are also fruit, just like nuts, even though they're not nuts. So there you go. A nut is a fruit, and some of the things we call nuts aren't really nuts, but they're still fruit, even if you can't make a fruit salad out of them. I hope that's clear. Nuts. Janice, you, you bring up a, a, a pet peeve of mine, which are fruit and nut chocolate bars. I hate them uh, because it's raisins. It's not fruit. It wasn't uh, it's not fruit. Yeah, but I mean, I'm thinking like there should be strawberries in there. There should be, you know, like fruit and nut. Anyway, don't get me started. This has also brought up a pet peeve of mine because my kid is allergic to tree nuts but not like peanuts, which are not a nut, a legume, coconut, not a nut, pine nuts, not a nut. So like, there's a lot of things that are called nuts that are, are not nuts. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's nuts. Who knew we had so many opinions on this? And, you know, if this keeps happening, I'm going to find myself unable to eat many foods I like because I won't know how they're classified. <laughs> I, I feel like we need another whole podcast that just focuses on nerd words and then we can really unpack them for a whole hour. <laughs> or just a, a podcast on nuts. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. We could get, we could get a whole season out of that. We've got some bonus content ready to go. <laughs> That's right. For the Platinum Level subscriber. <laughs> so, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this month. Thank you for joining us, dear readers. For next month, we're reading Love in the Time of Cholera by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Florentina and Fermina fall passionately in love in their youth, only to be separated from each other by Fermina's father, and then again by Fermina's realization that they've become strangers. When Fermina marries a prominent doctor, Florentino vows to stay true to their love, and then goes on to have literally hundreds of affairs. When Fermina's husband dies decades later, can Florentino's still-burning passion for Fermina rekindle their romance? Wait, is that the summary? <laughs> yes, yes it is. This critically acclaimed novel by the Nobel Prize-winning Garcia Marquez is sure to spark many questions about love and its nature. Have an idea about what we should read next? Let us know. You can find all our contact info at the bottom of the page at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. You can also find all of our past episodes and discussion questions there, too. If you haven't already, subscribe to Time to Read on your favorite podcasting service and maybe leave us a review. Tell your book-loving friends about us, too. And until next time, make sure you find Time, time to, to Read. read. second sorry yeah oh sorry oh okay <laughs> sorry kathleen just popped into my office to give me something and i was trying to make up like a podcast symbol i don't yeah anyway <laughs> i need to put a sign on my door maybe <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> yeah i was like pointing to my ears i i don't know what that was about yeah. well i'm got to start start on that next book i i feel like uh <laughs> that summary took a lot out of me
I, I feel like I'm going to need extra time. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe someone can read it to me. I, I, I don't know if that's, well, I guess there's, it could be an audio. It's book. called an audio book. Trevor. <laughs> What's the strange new technology where another person's <laughs> voice is telling me the story. Uh, it came to us from aliens. That's right. <laughs> 